and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, we're talking about 3D printing. That is, printing in the third dimension. I'm your host, Troy, and my pronouns are he, him. And with me, as always, the person who actually knows about oh, 3D boy. printing. Oh boy, my name's Ed. Uh, my pronouns are they and them, and I am here to seize the means of production with my 3D printer. The means of production of small plastic or resin models. The, th- the production of small plastic parts and uh, nothing legally dubious. Yes, nothing at all legally dubious. 3D printing has never been used for anything legally dubious. I'm not brave or dumb enough to try and 3D print a gun. Or to 3D print a copy of a, you know, Model by Games Workshop. Which is not uh, morally dubious, but is legally dubious. True. But they're getting harder to find because Games Workshop regularly makes purges of uh, anything that is infringing of copyright on most of the big 3D printing websites. Yeah. Yeah, they do. But before we really get into 3D printing and what it means for gaming, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. Ed, why don't you go first? Uh, my weeks of hobby still aren't really happening. Uh, work's been really busy, which is surprising for this time of year, normally in November and December. I'm down to working like half time, but I'm starting to creep into overtime. And yeah, it's weird. Uh, also doing a lot of house repairs and yeah, not a lot of hobby time. I did get my, uh, copy of Hakapale, which is the winter war expansion for advanced squad leader. Now I just need people to play advanced squad leader with and the time to play advanced squad leader with, and then also receive my copy of Escape the Dark Castle, which I ordered back in June when we talked about it on the Pride Month podcast. That just showed up, and I had completely forgotten about it. So when uh, our local game store called me, I was like, I, I didn't order that. And they're like, yeah, you ordered it back in June. I was like, oh, I remember that now. Well, at least you got it. That is true. I... I uh, for a while, I was like, eh, it's, they probably forgot about it, or it's going to get reprinted years from now, and then it'll just show up out of the blue. And then I've been sporadically trying some 3D printing, but not having a lot of success. Uh, the model that I'm trying to print is kind of tricky. It's like a bamboo bridge over a uh, pond, mm. and generally... I assume that when I get a model from a place like my mini factory, that the artist has done their tests and made sure that, you know, it actually will print uh, before they put it up for sale. Uh, this one, just because of the construction, uh, I haven't had any luck. So I think I'm on my like fourth revision of the model trying to get it to print. It's it's just weird because it's got like all the all the interlacing bits for the bridge um, makes it kind of difficult support wise. And so they had it kind of sitting at a 90 degree angle 
from the printing plate and it just seems to fall off the supports every time. Mm. So I'm trying it essentially flat with like a little bit of an offset to it so that it's not completely flat because your 3D printer is not going to like that. But if I can maybe do fewer supports, it'll be better. But stuff just seems to want to fall off the supports lately, which is my least favorite part of 3D printing is learning how to support because I feel like a lot of it is just guesswork. (laughs) It's more of an art than a science. There is like a science to it, but uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of knowledge of the process. And there's so many variables that can play into it, like the humidity, the temperature outside, um, what kind of resin you're, you're using, the model that you're using, the settings that it's using. So there's a lot that goes into it, but we'll get to talk about that today. Yay! Yay. My weekend hobby was uh, fairly busy. I've been playing Blood Bowl. I am in a Blood Bowl tournament now. I have won my first two games. Uh, the first one was a Skaven on Skaven mirror match, which I won three to one. Um, at the end of that game, most of the opponent's team were on the field taking naps, uh, either stunned or just downed, and it made more sense for him to just have them lay down and not get up so that I could only foul one of them each turn. Nothing like the old Yeah, so they took a nap while I scored my third and final touchdown. Um... Boo. It was fine. <laughs> Boo, Skaven. Yay, Skaven. Uh, scoring that third and final touchdown allowed me to upgrade one of my gutter runners to get uh, Sidestep, which is a fantastic skill. And these also the skill that allowed me to win my second game, where I faced the Dark Elves and won 1-0. Um, I'll have to get a uh, the actual physical box set of Skaven, and then someday we can do an in-person game of uh rat men shenanigans versus elf bullshit see how that well, goes but i think even after only a week i think you're probably better at the game than i am at this point i mean i do want to buy a physical box of the skaven for blood bowl i that is fully something i intend to do uh none of the game stores around here have one i have checked all of them uh so hmm. eventually i'll get it but that being said the second game it was a lot of back and forth between because the elves couldn't move fast and faster than the skaven and the skaven had a hard time like getting away from the elves so yeah it was there were a lot of back and forth right around the scrimmage line where like he formed a cage and then couldn't go anywhere because my guys like he couldn't knock my guys out enough because elves aren't good at that um and he kept throwing the stuff the um Defender stumbles, which doesn't do anything to my all my guys who have dodge. See, this is why you need the witch elf to come in and rip the rat thing's head yeah, off. Yeah, we were fairly low level. He didn't have a witch elf yet. He really? was saving for it. Huh. Um, because we were uh, these were new teams. This was only their second game ever. Um, so the value mm-hmm. on witch elf, he didn't have the witch elf. He couldn't afford a witch elf yet. Uh, usually, uh, you can afford a witch elf, like, right at the beginning, but you have to, you'll end up with, like, the bare minimum number of players. Yeah, he went with... I find that it's worth it because she's the really only 
bashy member of the team outside of the assassins. He went with which I don't even know if you can get assassins in the in the online version. I know that they're in it. I don't know if they're like a special player only or something. Um, in his case, he went with four blitzers and a full crew of linemen. Um, mm, yeah, I've only got like I think I had like two blitzers, the minimum number of linemen, and then the witch elf, and then I just run around the field terrorizing everything with the witch elf because she she's scary yeah. he just had blitzers and linemen i think getting extra blitzers was you know and probably re-rolls may have been the difference yeah re-rolls are always good don't be a noob like me who forgets to take any re-rolls and then you're screwed. that may be like where the money for uh the witch elf in your game came from is that he bought probably. re-rolls rather than a witch elf and you bought a witch elf <laughs> um but yeah, he uh, he also had an apothecary, which came in handy because I almost killed one of his guys. Uh, he got the death and then used the apothecary to re-roll it into something not terrible. Um, I'm not dead yet. But yeah, at the end, my guy with sidestep basically just, he kept pushing that guy around and that guy just moved out of the way rather than be pushed to where he would have preferred and was able to, at uh, the final turn, grab the ball and run it into the end zone for a touchdown. Boo. So, yeah, Skaven. They're great. The Ratmen are the best. Um, I also had two D&D games. In one of them, there was something of a climactic fight where the Warlock finally faced his patron, the Archfey, and was able to, after a long multi-stage battle that kept shifting locations via illusions and like shifting enemies each time they were able to kill the archfey using a special dagger that actually meant the archfey would stay dead uh one side effect of this of course is that when you kill an archfey the archfey's powers have to go somewhere and the Warlock, being an elf, and being linked to the Archfey already, and standing next to him, got the powers. So now he's an Archfey. Hooray? Effectively, it changes his race from elf to fey. Um, tweaks a couple of his abilities, and doesn't alter much other stuff. Um... The goal being that he's now the source of his own magic powers. Interesting. But he hasn't learned how to tap into it fully. So his power level is exactly the same as it was previously. It kind of sounds like a wild magic situation where he should end up having to roll and something weird happens because he doesn't know his own magic. In fact, he did change some of his class levels to wild magic sorcerer. Um, cause he had some sorcerer levels and so he asked if he could change those to wild magic and I was like, hell yes. So. Potted plant. Yes. So now he's got some wild magic sorcery going on. Uh, the rest of the party was real helpful in that fight. Although, um, the warlock nearly died twice. Um, only to get brought back up by healing magic. Uh. Him just running straight at people to try and stab them with a dagger, not the best strategy. Mm -hmm. um, Only the barbarian gets to do that. Yeah, that game doesn't have a barbarian. My other group, the one that has a barbarian, uh, did some investigation of a murdered 
monastery full of monks, figured that the people who did it were stealing the crystal that was sealing an ancient demon there, followed the cart that they had used to a prison, to like an old abandoned prison outside of town, went in and found it to have a bunch of demons and undead, and then fought their way through those, um, and got to the big final boss fight of this particular... It's not really a dungeon, because it's just one building. But it's a big demon and his minions, and he's like, Ho, 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 you wanted the crystal? If you had been here a week ago, you would have been able to get it. But it's already been moved. Dun, dun, dun. Which, which is really because they spent a bunch of time dicking around in their main city rather than following up on plot stuff. Mm. So, uh, yeah. That's kind of to remind them that stuff is moving around without them. The universe does not revolve around you. I mean, it kind of does, because that's the nature of D&D, but also stuff happens whether or not they're ready for it. Is the is the point I'm trying to sort of make here. And also, it means that... I feel like it's a good thing in a D&D game to have the party fail at something on occasion. It shouldn't be... Fail every, signs. It, no, it shouldn't be every time that the party tries to, like, stop a bad guy that they fail. But every once in a while, they should arrive slightly too late because they were, you know trying to go to all the shops and buy magic items or, like, argue with shopkeepers. Or they just stopped and did a side quest that they didn't have to do. And so when they get to where the main quest is, they find out that uh, the villain's already been here, done his thing, and left. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you had gotten here a couple days earlier, you would have won. Or they, you know, that occasionally failing to stop the main plot is helpful to keep the keeping the party motivated. It also helps explain yeah, yeah, why the dramatic motivation going. It also helps explain why the villain can like succeed at the main plot if they get foiled at every goddamn turn by the party. <laughs> like if the party just stops them anytime they try to do anything, then the villain's plot shouldn't progress, right? <laughs> oh no, I've been foiled. Game yeah. over. So you got to let the villain get some wins in and having the party see that happen is a nice way to Keep it moving. And, uh, yeah, that's been my week in hobby. Woo! So our main topic, Ed. Hooray! 3D printing. Uh, I don't have a, any kind of good jokey intro. 3D printing, uh, when you need to print 3Ds. Yeah, I don't think I've actually tried to print a set of Ds yet. Go get on it. Make a D cube. D cube. <laughs> yes, three D three D printing. I like it. So yeah, my uh, workspace is in addition to cluttered with professional made minis. It's also cluttered now with plastic made tat. So what is three D printing? Uh, it's printing. And it also includes the Z-axis, so you get a three-dimensional image, uh, usually with the aid of some kind of CAD software. Um, it's also known as additive manufacturing, because instead of taking a raw material and 
tearing it apart to get whatever object you're trying to get. You are taking a material, usually some kind of plastic or uh, sometimes metal, and you are adding those materials together to get whatever object uh, you are desiring. The biggest advantage of 3D printing and additive manufacturing over traditional manufacturing is that uh, you can produce objects and shapes that would be either incredibly difficult or nigh impossible to make with a traditional manufacturing process. Uh, for example, the test model that came with my 3D printer is a uh, <clears throat> lattice cube that has the company logo inside it. And yes, you could technically make that with a cast uh, if you took the time to put together a wax model and then, you know, put that in the casting medium and then melt the wax out and then cast it in... Uh, metal or if you took a block of wood you could carve something in there if you had a lot of really fine tools but it's a shape that is going to be much easier and more practical to do with a 3d printer um in the last probably decade or so is when the home hobbyist 3d printing has really taken off um prior to that it was a uh, very niche uh, manufacturing process. So, history of 3D printing. Uh, the first mention of a 3D printing-like process showed up in 1945 in a short story by Murray Leinster called Things Pass By, where he describes an armature that has uh, uh, plastics that come out of it and they harden in the air and then it just kind of draws an object uh, into existence. And ever since then, 3D printers have shown up kind of as just like the, the background radiation of a lot of science fiction. Um, there's not always a whole lot of detail into how it works. It's just kind of a convenient thing of like, this is our manufacturing process. Um, think like the replicators in Star Trek, which is kind of like 3D printing with their transporter technology. Uh, the maker from Transmetropolitan, um, Age of Ultron. Ultron basically 3D prints himself into existence. So it shows up from time to time, uh, but it's not like a big, huge uh, plot point or like anything like that. It's just kind of the, the background theming of the world so as a printing process it pretty much grew up in conjunction with the regular 2d printing on paper uh, that we're most familiar with uh, so starting in the 60s and 70s when you start getting uh, small microelectronics and things like that people are like hey let's print stuff on paper and then somebody thinks hey if we can print on paper uh can we print up as well? And while the paper printing took off and there was a lot of research and investment in that because it's a, it's a very obvious and practical thing to do. 3D printing, not so much. Uh, the production process was much more difficult. The materials really weren't there and nobody at the time really thought 
much of what you could do with this process. So like in the 1970s, uh, one of the printing printing companies, they were experimenting with it because one of their engineers, he's like, hey, I really like this idea. Let's invest in it. And his total yearly budget for his research was $500, which I'm sure in, in the 70s is a lot more money uh, in today's terms. But in the grand scheme of a giant company that's doing research on computer technology, that's not a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so in the eighties, um, you get a lot more development of the materials, uh, you start showing, uh, or you start seeing, uh, metal printing show up and it really, it just kind of hums along. You get a lot of people just tinkering back and forth and like any technology, it really is just kind of an incremental process, much like 3d printing itself. Um, and then by 1988, you get uh, 3D Systems Corporation, which released a their the first commercial 3D printer called the SLA-1 for the very modest sum of $650,000. That's... Wow, that's a lot of money, even now. Do you want a car, or do yeah. you want the ability to make small plastic tech? More like, do you want a house, yeah. <laughs> or do you want to make small plastic tat? So yeah, a lot of the history of 3D printing, it's a lot of it is like patents and research and, you know, m small material improvements going back and forth. Um, that's why I'm not going into a whole lot of detail, just kind of doing the broad strokes. Um, in the 90s, you get selective laser sintering and direct metal laser sintering, um, which is the big one that becomes like the main manufacturing industrial process because a lot of uh, aircraft manufacturers car manufacturers like it because it's easy to make custom metal parts for your vehicles or like custom prototype parts and as the technology is getting better it's becoming more practical to use these parts and not have them fall apart because um, previous to this a lot of 3d printing was used for what's called rapid prototyping where you're essentially making a model just like we do um, just to show this is the general shape of the object that we want, or this is how, you know, it will fit into whatever device we're making. And then how do we make that with a uh, conventional manufacturing process? So in the nineties, you start to get more use of actual 3d printed parts. Um, and then in 2009, the, uh, patents on fused deposition modeling, which is the uh, the plastic extrusion. So when people think of a 3D printer, they think of a little nozzle that goes around and draws something in plastic. Um, that patent expired in 2009. So that's when the floodgates kind of opened and everybody and their grandmother uh, started releasing commercial 3D printers. And for a while in the early to mid 2010s, uh, there's a lot of people talking about how 3D printing, it was going to be like the next uh, industrial revolution and that it was going to somehow save the planet and be like this miracle manufacturing process, uh, which it's really not because it's a very slow, delicate process and it's not great for wide scale manufacturing. Uh, and then... Up until 
I guess between uh, 2012 and 2022, the last decade, the price of 3D printers has really come down. Um, probably thanks to a lot of those old patents from the 70s and 80s expiring. And so back when I first started looking into 3D printing, a very beginner model F... Uh, uh, sorry, my train of thought just derailed there. FDM printer was still a couple thousand dollars. And usually they were shipped in like kits that you had to assemble. And then sometimes it would have like extra parts that the 3D printer itself would have to make for itself once you had like the basic rigging up um there were a couple of companies like makerbot who were making fully put together printers but those ones were really expensive and now you can get a decent quality either fdm or sla printer which is the stereo lithography printer that i use for about 200 dollars um 200 to 500 is going to be your like entry level range for getting into this hobby and it is an entire hobby uh on its own any any questions from the class so far um let's see 3d printing was expensive is now cheap is its own hobby uh there's different types of 3d printing um but what 3D printers do? I mean, I follow everything. It's printing <laughs> in three dimensions. Yeah. When do we get to making whole armies of little plastic men for playing games with? Um, when you reach the appropriate level of insanity. Okay. Yeah. So there's... There's like seven different types of 3D printing. There's only two types that are really uh, practical and or even, uh, I guess, affordable for our practices. One of them is the fused deposition modeling where it's the little uh, armature that traces the melted plastic. And then the SLA, which uses uh, UV lights and lasers to cure little slices of resin that go up and down on the little print bed and creates nice little uh resin minis uh fdm printing it's much more useful for larger objects or terrain pieces um generally it has a lower resolution and so you can see a lot of like the striations uh between the layers and things like that so they're not great for miniatures i've seen people try um they're not great but I guess if you need, like, a bunch of pawns for D&D or something like that, you could try and do it with one of those printers if you have one that's got a uh, particularly small nozzle on it. But you're going to be better off for, uh, you know, printing out buildings or um, particularly large models. Like, I have some for knockoff Imperial Knights, um, which, yeah, those are way too big to print on my on my resin printer. Uh, a uh, FM, FDM printer is going to be a lot better for that. Um, the other one is the SLA printer, which is the one that I use. Um, and that uses a liquid resin and then it has lasers underneath it that as it moves the print head up, it solidifies it and then you get a nice looking little miniature at the end, assuming it doesn't fail horribly. 
Um, these are the ones that are better for doing actual miniatures because your print resolution is primarily going to be determined by how much the print head moves and the length of the polymer chains that make up the resin. Whereas there's, you know, on the print head for the FDM printer, you can only get so small on that print head. And so there will be a limit to, you know, how much resolution you're going to get. But for the resin, it's just a lot better. And if you've looked at my Instagram, uh, those space dwarves that I printed, those are printed on an SLA printer. And if you look really close, you can see like the striations between the layers. But once it's all painted and you're looking at it from, you know, a, a regular viewing distance, you really can't tell. It looks like it was just a, a regular plastic cast miniature. Um, FDM, it's arguably the easier process to get into. It doesn't need a whole lot of extra guff around it. You just put the printer together, you get it leveled, and, you know, assuming that you're making your uh, 3D slices nice and neat, that's pretty much all you need. Um, also see a lot of, like, cosplay people use these because they're good for making those large plastic parts so you can make, you know, like suits of armor. Um, there were a lot of Mandalorian things that I saw getting printed uh, on Reddit and whatnot around the time that the Mandalorian came out. And uh, now that I think about it, if I wanted to make my AR-15 look like a, a Space Marine bolter, I could definitely do that uh, with one of those printers. I have to say, people <laughs> make, using 3D printers to make Mandalorian armor feels like it's um, against the code. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's clearly not being made out of, uh, fuck, what's the metal? Uh. Um, Beskar. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you need to make it out of Beskar, and that involves a lot of hammering, as we have seen. Um. That's what you need a, that's why you need a laser centering printer. Does that hammer it? Uh, no. Then, it just shoots it with a laser to melt the metal. Okay, that is much more Star Wars. Um, but also, side note here, having watched The Mandalorian and Andor and all these other Star Wars shows, any Star Wars show where someone uses a hammer repeatedly throughout the show is better than a Star Wars show that does not have a character doing hammered stuff, hammering. <laughs> the the Star Wars hammering index. Yeah. Um, Andor <laughs> has a guy, a named character, who does hammering on a giant anvil thing and it's great the mandalorian has the armorer who does hammering and forging and stuff and it's great book of boba fett no hammering <laughs> obi-wan kenobi no hammering you hear us lucasfilm uh more hammering. more hammering like seriously you want to make the next big star wars movie amazing have a whole scene in like a space dwarf workshop where there's just a bunch of hammering going on by the main characters. <laughs> they have to forge a new lightsaber. Like, literally forge a lightsaber. In a forge. I don't know which race would be most prone to using hammers. Maybe Ugnaughts. Definitely Ugnaughts. Um, I don't know. I don't know what other races get stereotyped as tradespeople. Um, Wookiees? I can see Wookiees using a lot of hammers. No, because all their technology is wood. 
wood hammer. I mean, like literally, their spaceship things have are like made of wood. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think here. Uh, Ugnaughts are really the primary one. Uh, Jawas, Jawas use hammers. Jawas use crowbars. They're pulling stuff apart, <laughs> not putting it back together. Um. Hey man, you gotta you gotta hit that crowbar with a hammer to get you know a good a good impact on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, teeny. Um, trying to think of what are the trades people. I don't know. I'm okay. You hear that, Lucasfilm? We need more more trades people representation in uh in Star Wars. I mean, I'm sure the Chianotians theoretically have some factories, but it's not. I bet they use 3D printers. Yeah, but they're like weird and biological. <laughs> um, biological 3D printer. Just print some meat. I mean, there are biological 3D printers, dude. <laughs> used for that exact thing. They're like 3D printing cells onto bioscaffolding to try and create... Um, uh, transplantable organs using someone's existing DNA. That's how you get the thing. No, that's how you get, like, transplanting organs without growing them inside of clones and dealing with ethical issues. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I, I, that's my thoughts, is, uh, more hammers in 3D printing? <laughs> I mean, you could 3D print a hammer. Yeah, I don't think that would work well. I'll have to find a hammer and sickle to print. There you go. Our yeah. 3D printer. Yep. Well, I mean, 3D printing it does it does bring production to the masses. Uh, if you want to, if you want to hear more about that, listen to uh, Hell of a Way to Die podcast talking about uh, Rebels and Myanmar 3D printing FGC nine uh, semi-automatic machine guns. Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. You can make just about anything with a 3D printer, even a gun. <laughs> yeah, let's not. No, not not my thing. Uh, so SLA is the printing process that I use for my miniatures. Um, it's the better it's the better process for minis, um, specifically like human figures or smaller objects that you're not going to be using as like area terrain. Or things like that. Um, unfortunately, it is the more finicky process. Uh, it involves toxic chemicals because the resins that you use uh, are not great to breathe in. Uh, you're going to need a dedicated space for it since it's got a lot of fumes. Um, I had mine running in the garage when I first got mine. And my wife and mother-in-law could smell the fumes down in the basement. So, it's pretty strong. Um you also need like alcohol and water and cleaners to get the uncured resin off the models. And then you've got to let it cure under a UV light. So there's a lot more to it. Whereas the uh, extrusion printer, you know, put it in your workspace and just kind of let it go. And then once it's done, it's done. Um, so the reason I use three printers for gaming stuff is because I like to make custom stuff. And I can just kind of make whatever I want. Um, 
couple weeks, or I guess a couple months ago at this point, uh, when we were playing Infinity, I had a small 3D printed bonsai tree that we were using as a prop for our Infinity game. And it got stored away in your box of terrain when you left. And I realized that. And then I was like, oh, I'm just going to print another one in about an hour. I had another uh, another little bonsai tree. Yep, and uh, I painted up the one that you that you know got packed away in my box, and now it's part of my things. Yep, um, it's a good way to get a lot of custom parts. Um, there's tons of 3D printing resources out there. Uh, my mini factory is the one that I use that's specifically geared towards wargaming. Um, everyone and their grandmother has a, a 3D printing tribe on there, and you can find pretty much anything you would want. Uh, there's a lot of Patreons out there. I subscribe to Cyberforge. I get lots of good cyberpunk and pop culture knockoff stuff there. Uh, Cyberforge also made my Space Dwarves. Um, when the squats came back to 40k, that was the project that they took on. Um, yeah, sorry, my, my train of thought and my notes just kind of ran dry there. Um, what are some of the benefits of 3D printing for games, especially the kind of games we like to play? Um, it makes getting like, uh, if you have like a specific aesthetic that you're looking for, uh, it makes it easy to get those get those pieces or if you have like your own CAD program, you can make your own your own stuff that's gonna fit to whatever aesthetic or theme that you're trying to fit rather than you know trying to cobble together pieces for uh, uh, from you know third party manufacturers or trying to get bits from GW, which GW doesn't even sell bits anymore. So if you look around enough, you can find people who will make, uh, you know, the shoulder pads for the different marine chapters or different heads, different weapons, things like that. Um, yeah, just customization. That's a lot of a lot of what I use it for. Um, also, things like we have. Uh, we had a scenario that you were wanting to run that involved uh, having like computer terminals or like servers, something like that. Um, I was able to make some of those pretty easy uh, for our, for our gaming. Um, yeah. And I suppose also for making things custom that maybe are harder to find or aren't available in every location. Um, for a game like Rangers of Shadowdeep, there is a very large bestiary, and certain missions may require certain things, and yeah. sometimes you just have to print off whatever. Uh, for example, there are missions that require uh, swarms of giant flies, which uh, there are a couple of companies that make those, but they're not common, and they're not always in stock, but there are like mm -hmm. dozens of... 3D printable models that are quite simple and quite fast and you can just churn them out. Yeah, the other one that comes to mind um, is for Frostgrave. Uh, trying to make uh, 
ruins, especially, uh, like, ruined artifacts. So, like, statues or more complex pieces of masonry or architecture. Um, if you're trying to find things to turn into, like, old, broken-down statues, it can be surprisingly tricky to find things that work. I mean, if you go to a craft store, you'll you'll probably find something that works, but it may not, you know, quite fit your aesthetic because it's going for a, you know, their uh, whatever demographic or look that the craft store is trying to go for. But you can go and find, you know, 3D, 3D printer files for old Greek statues, Roman statues, um, any historical society that produced statues that we have enough photographs of to produce a 3d printed file from you can make those and then you can cut it up smash it up do whatever you want print as many of them as you want and you know there you've got frost grave terrain um i think one of them is uh supposed to be like a museum that has a bunch of statues in it that all come to life if you touch the wrong ones mm -hmm. and trying to source things that would make good statues would take a lot longer than to just load up some classical sculptures, print them out, and, you know, good to go. Or uh, another example would be for uh, Zona Alpha. I was going for, you know, Eastern European look. Uh, trying to find a statue of Lenin, you're you're not going to find one just out in the wild. Unless you're in East Germany. <laughs> so being... Yeah, unless you're in East Germany, you're not going to find a little mini mini statuette of Lenin just out in the wild. So being able to 3D print one, it, it made it a lot easier to get the stuff that I was looking for. Um, and I guess the thing that's making it most difficult to talk about, like, why we do the 3D printing stuff for our hobby is because it, it really is just kind of like an add-on or a spice. Um, you're with the amount of time and money investment that it takes to do 3d printing, you're not going to entirely replace, um, first party or third party miniatures. Uh, there are some people out there who will produce entire games that are made for 3d printing. And, you know, when you back their Kickstarter or their Patreon, they'll send you the rules. And then these are all the files that you need to play the game. And that is really cool because there is kind of a, democratization of the manufacturing process in there as long as you have somebody who can create competent CAD files um, you're not going to be waiting on manufacturers in China or manufacturers here in the US or distribution to say we got the money here's your files you guys have at it uh, please just don't resell our our stuff um, but as far as like mainline wargaming it really is just adding extra flavor and just another layer of fun onto the game that we're already playing. Um, the thing that I would like to see as the future of 3D printing in the wargaming space is I would like to see the big companies really embrace 3D printing as a legitimate option. Because right now, a lot of places... Uh, for some reason, they seem to think that 3D printing is going to, like, take over and destroy their entire industry. It's really not. Um, it's a finicky enough process that 
you're not going to have legions of nerds just, you know, saying, I'm going to spend $300 and I'm never going to have to buy a miniature again. That's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, only a madman tries to print out 2,000 points of Space Marines on a 3D printer. It's going to take you forever. Uh, even for somebody who's an experienced 3D printer and knows what they're doing, it's probably going to take you a long time. Um, just for those 10 models that I printed out for Stargrave, that took me a good six months to get those all together. Uh, so it's not a light endeavor to try and do something large scale like that. However, with the way that, for example, G-Dubs has their ridiculously priced uh, character units, you know, they'll charge you $30 for one model. I would also note, what? it's kind of funny that you're bringing this up, um, all the uh, Warhammer models that they display as like the next line of models or whatever when they have events mm -hmm. are 3D printed. Yeah, rapid prototyping. Yeah. <laughs> um, if G-Dubs had a thing where they said, you know, instead of having to produce and then stock, you know, a whole bunch of shoulder pads or a whole bunch of weapon sprues be like, you know, 10 bucks. Here's your, here's your 3d print file for the shoulder pads or these chapter customization things or these heavy weapons and just have at it. Uh, you know, under, obviously under the condition of please don't reprint it and sell it or, you know, sell our 3d print files to somebody else. Uh, that I think would do a lot to generate a lot of goodwill with some of the companies, uh, and their, their nerd followers. Cause I just, it drives me crazy when G-Dubs is like, Hey, do you want to have heavy weapons guys in your squads? Uh, pay us $50 for a sprue of heavy weapons. And I'm just like, no. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know how much of that is just pure greed all or it. if it's like it's all, all production costs. True, it is capitalism. Um, but I feel like if they if they could do something 3D print wise for that and focus less on. They just have they would have to focus far less on like the logistics of actually making those parts and they could, I don't know, do something to make Warhammer a better game rather than nickel and diming people for stupid customization parts. Um, or if they were really cool, they would implement like their own hero forge system where you can create your own, you know, custom general from whatever things they want to put into that system. That would be a really bitchin thing. That um, would be really bitchin, especially because they could tie it into like the weapon options and customization options available to a specific model. So yeah. that you could, you know, select human, general, warmaster, whatever, and then it would list off, here's the different weapons that they can have, and let you, you know, pick weapon and gear options to match what you normally run. Yeah. So, I don't know, I don't know why they're so adverse to it. I don't know if it's just because it's a new technology and they're feeling threatened by it, but... And the 3D printing community, and especially where it crosses over with the wargame community, is so small that 
if there was going to be some kind of financial impact from them, from some nerd printing off 2,000 points of Space Wolves on their printer, they're never going to notice it. It's such a small community that, you know, the impact that this uh, decentralized production is going to have, they're never going to notice that money. Um, and maybe that's why they, you know, they won't do anything 3D printed related because it's just going to be, you know, wasted money on their end if they're trying to put all this together and there's only a very small audience using it. But there is an audience there. It would make things a lot easier. <laughs> but yeah, nobody nobody's going to be trying to make an entire army out of 3D printed stuff. Uh, the reason why I do it and the reason why probably a lot of people do it is because you want custom shit or stuff that's not going to be produced by an actual manufacturer. Um, there is no official model line for a game like uh, Rain and Hell. Yeah, you could use, uh, you know, uh, Bloodthirsters or Demonettes from Games Workshop. But, you know, I want something different, something that's more akin to what I want to do for that game. And so going around on, like, my mini factory and looking for things that I think fit thematically or stuff that I just think is cool and different. Um, for me, that increases my enjoyment of the game rather than just using, you know, G-dub stuff. Um, so I guess the TLDR is of why we do 3D print for this hobby is because we can make cool extras to add on to the game, not necessarily trying to replace the game itself. Yeah. Yeah. So... If you're gonna if you're gonna do 3D printing, um, just be aware that it is its own hobby in itself. It takes a lot of time and energy to get stuff printed. But if you're somebody like me who, when you know, when I finish putting something together at work or I finish installing something, I get like a big dopamine rush. It's kind of the same thing with 3D printing. I like to tinker with stuff, so it it fits my thing just right. But if you're somebody who's like, I want to I want to 3D print stuff. I just want to plug it in and I want to print. Uh, that's not how it works. You're better off buying some STLs and sending those off to a commercial uh, print factory, which those do exist. I've gotten some uh, from those companies. You generally get pretty good results. Uh, they're going to have 3D printers that are a lot better than what an individual could probably reasonably afford. And they, they also know what they're doing, so they're going to be able to you know get it all looking nice and neat for you. Um, but if you're somebody who wants to have a hobby that has a lot of potential just for games in general. Like, you know, I can make parts for other board games. It doesn't necessarily have to be just wargaming. Uh, 3D printing, it's where it's at. Take a look at uh, either F FDM or SLA printers. Expect to spend anywhere from 300 to $500 for a beginner printer. Make sure you have some space for it, especially if you're doing... Uh, an SLA printer with the resin, uh, that's going to be a bit messier of a process and have at it, have fun. Sorry, this episode was my, my notes were not sufficient for this one. Yes, they were. And I'll cut that line if I have to. <laughs> Never. Never. But yeah, 3d printing. I enjoy it. Uh, I, I think you might enjoy it. I don't know. Depends on how much patience you have for stuff like this. Yeah. 
I don't have a 3D printer because I live in an apartment and don't have space or, you know, ability to run that kind of thing. But if I... Yeah, it's... That's the that's the definitely the biggest issue for... I've wanted a 3D printer for uh, probably the last decade or so, and for a long time didn't make enough money to afford one, and then when I did, uh, we lived in our tiny little apartment and didn't have space for a 3D printer. Yeah. So... With 3D printing discussed, we come to the next segment of the podcast, which is Board Game Corner. And today, we're going to talk about Monopoly. Oh boy, Uh, I can't remember the last time I played Monopoly. It's been quite a while for me. So, Monopoly was derived from a board game created in 1903 called The Landlord's Game that was designed to demonstrate that an economy that rewards individuals is better than one where monopolies hold all the wealth and was supposed to promote uh, economic theories involving taxation of land rules. Um, This is what we call iron. It had two sets of rules. One that had these tax uh, settings that would, you know, promote individual stuff and punish landlords, and one that is essentially the current rules. Uh, Parker Brothers bought the game, and started publishing it in 1935 without the taxation rules. And, you know, changing the name to Monopoly. Um, effectively just determining that the uh, the version that shows that the economy punishes individuals and rewards landlords was a better game! Um, the game has been published since 1935. Parker Brothers got bought in, out by Hasbro in 1991, so now it's a Hasbro game. It's a mess. Partially, I think, because of the removal of the original set of rules. Um, the The game is... It's roll and go with a bunch of additional bits and pieces, uh, get-out-of-jail-free cards and free parking, and no two groups that I've ever seen play it can quite agree on what the rules are because everyone's played it at home or with family and had specific house rules added to it. Uh, It lasts way too long. It inevitably becomes a one-sided slog, and it's not particularly fun to play. So, basically, just like real-life capitalism. Um, My best advice is if someone gets out a box of Monopoly and says, let's play a board game, to smack it out of their hands, (laughs) say, no, no, and go get out something better. Um, If you've got people who want to play Monopoly or who want to play a board game and think Monopoly's great, get out Ticket to Ride. Uh, You could even get out Catan, though I don't like Catan either. You could get out, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some good... Literally any other board game. Well, the thing about Monopoly is that it's a straightforward-ish game, so you don't want to... When someone brings out Monopoly, you don't want to say, no, this is bad, and then dig out Twilight Imperium. Yes, you that, <laughs> that That's kind of taking it a little too far. You might want to dig out something like... Uh, Cash and Guns, which is a much simpler party game. You might want to dig out something like, um, I mean, I mentioned, uh, 
Ticket to Ride. If you want a good, uh, a very similar. If you want a good party game that encompasses capitalism, do Pit. We talked about Pit. Yeah, before. Pit would be good. Um, any of the like Euro Eins zwei drei build an empire kind of games are good for this. Uh, Azul is great if you want something that's brightly colored and has a straightforward rule set, and you actually kind of build something for in it. Um, it is only up to four players, but y- you know what? Um, Monopoly, yeah, is not great. So d- just don't play Monopoly. That's my advice here. <laughs> I still think we should play Monopoly in our group just for, for the lulls. And then eventually you flip the board. I mean, uh, if we're going to play Monopoly... You flip the board and say, power to the workers. I, if we're going to play Monopoly, we have to play with the variation where the uh, all the property cards are shuffled up and dealt out to the players before the game begins. Hmm. Rather than having to go around the board and buy them. Because that takes forever and leads to weird situations where you're mortgaging properties to buy other properties. It, it's just bad. It... it if you shuffle all the cards out and deal them to the players, it cuts the game time by like an hour and a half because the first section just doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. you go straight into the like construction and like actual competition part of the game. Um, it's a much faster and much less annoying way to play. Although I guess kudos to Hasbro for successfully recreating modern economics in a board game. Yes, but also kudos to Hasbro for using that board game to, like, pull money out of everything the way they do with all their games. Boo. The way they've done with Magic the Gathering and the way they are trying to do with Dungeons & Dragons right now. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with Hasbro and or Wizards, but there's... Somebody's getting antsy saying that the line isn't going up enough. I'm tired of getting secret layer notifications. Um, it's too much. So I think part of it is that they're... We've kind of reached the point where there's not as much demand for plastic crap toys. Um, like, kids would rather get... Um, cards for in-game video... For video game in-game purchases. For Fortnite Boo. or whatever. Um, then they would get a action figure. Um, yeah, reject modernity, embrace the tradition of action figures. Yeah, but effectively... I've got a bunch of them on my desk right now. Yeah, effectively, <laughs> the, the amount of toys that you can buy for kids is down pretty substantially. Uh, kids would rather not have the physical toys. They'd rather have other stuff. And so Hasbro is trying to make their money in everything surrounding the toys and not just the toys. And that means monetizing their other non-straight-up toy brands. And that means making Wizards of the Coast print more money in Magic the Gathering and figuring out how to rake in more money from Dungeons & Dragons. And in particular, according to their more recent documents trying to figure out how they can get players to give them as much money as Dungeon Masters give them. Uh, that's called a video game. I mean, I'm sure they'll try to produce more video games. I think they had a trailer for Baldur's Gate 3 or like early stuff for a new, 
for Baldur's Gate 3 as a video game. Baldur's Gate 3 has been an absolute train wreck. Yeah, they're doing more <laughs> Baldur's Gate 3 stuff. Um, I mean, the Dungeons & Dragons movie coming out might give them the option of doing more Dungeons & Dragons film stuff or, or TV show stuff or cartoons. or Who knows? They're just going to try and do everything they can to make to squeeze money out of the D&D property. I mean, if if they want to sell more toys, they're missing the obvious de- demographic of mid-age millennials like me. Mid-age? <laughs> just, just market us some of that sweet, sweet nostalgia. I mean, they've done that. They're doing that. It, it's, it's a demographic that isn't as big. Uh, the demographic of that is not spending as much money and buying in the quantity that they want. That's true. Inflation. Yes. Um, the thing to watch, of course, is going to be interesting is, uh, if they do try to do weird microtransaction-y shenanigans in Dungeons and Dragons, which people are worried about already, given capitalism, um, how fast people move to other systems that aren't D&D. I will say that if they try and do microtransaction uh season pass bullshit like that with D. I will drop it like a hot rock because i have done that with video games uh as somebody who has a compulsive personality i cannot engage with games that engage in that kind of monetization yeah it is bad for it is bad for my mental health and it is bad for my wallet and i've dropped Fortnite because of that i've dropped PUBG because of it um I've dropped Hearthstone for that and also just because Activision is a terrible company. Um, I have less of an issue with it in Magic Arena just because I'm either going to be paying to play Magic Arena or I'm going to be buying the physical cards. So that one kind of evens out. But if they're going to make me pay microtransactions for my imagination, no, not doing Yeah, I that. think it doesn't work in Dungeons & Dragons because there are alternatives. There are so many alternatives... And many of them are done at the same level of quality or greater than the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, yeah, and it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna try and create your own digital system that D and D can only <laughs> run through that system. Uh, good luck. Good luck running your own franchise into the ground, just like they're saying that uh, Magic is currently being run into the ground. Well, they're gearing up to do it with D&D, so we'll see. Hooray. We will see. This is why we need to seize the means of game production. Seize the means of your imagination. Yep. And, as always... I don't know know what I'm doing there. uh, You can follow us on the Bird website, although we don't really post on Twitter anymore. You can follow us on Instagram, at Country. Uh, don't cross picket lines, uh, support your local game store, and do all the things Ed tells you to do. Oh boy, if you want to see uh, some of my 3D printing stuff, you can follow me at Animadness on Instagram. I uh, show off prints in progress, finished prints and stuff there. Uh, I forgot to mention it earlier, but if you do want some 3D printing resources uh, for... uh, Specifically, 3D files. Check out uh, Cults 3D, My Mini Factory, Thingiverse, uh, websites like that. You're going to be able to find just about anything you want. Uh, or Patreon. There's a lot of artists on Patreon. Um, if you can pay for your 3D prints, 
you know, support those artists if you can. Uh, also support your Red Crosses for Ukraine and Armenia, uh, Kurdish Red Crescent, Palestinian Red Crescent. Uh, buy tickets to your local drag shows. Uh, yeah. Support whoever you can. Yeah. And go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>